Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000065 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands. And um, I'm ordering the T-shirts tomorrow. And Radio City Docklands is, of course, on Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nations. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I always note that their land was never ceded. And it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So who else is over uh, unprecedented? <laughs> We've got to take our medicine, though, of course. And I reckon uh, this lockdown will continue until we are at a point where we're consistently seeing single-digit increases day to day. And as you can imagine, we're a fair way off that at the moment. But the experts, the epidemiologists that I've been listening to and reading seem to think that there is some sort of cause for optimism. We had some reasonably good numbers today, but of course the uh, the number that we would need to be focused on is, is the R number, and that's the number, of course, that represents the amount of people that have been infected from someone who has contracted the virus. And it's been hovering for the last week or so at around about one, and there's some, some optimism that we might just be able to be on the threshold of getting that number below one, and if we can continue to do the right things in the medium and short term, then hopefully we'll be out of this lockdown sooner rather than, than later. We won't have to extend beyond the six weeks. But of course, in the medium to long term, we need to dramatically reform the economy and in particular, the, the labour market. We can't have people contract, contracting or spreading the virus because they're working two or three jobs with no security and no leave entitlements. We need to basically sort that shit out. And here's a tip. Uh, Thatcherism and Reaganism isn't going to get us anywhere near that point. So uh, if you're listening, Joss, uh, just uh, you might want to, you know, just change tack a little bit because our future is not 1980s Britain. But um, back locally, we're beginning to see numbers of COVID rise within the Aboriginal community here in Victoria to alarming levels. There are now 45 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Aboriginal communities in Victoria. That's up from 37 cases last week. 24 of those cases are currently active. But I I guess the thing to remember with, with these numbers is that there's likely to be more than that in the Aboriginal community. And I say that for two reasons. First of all, First Nations communities in Victoria are young. The vast majority of our mob are 25 years or younger. And so therefore, people that have it, uh, there's a greater chance that they'll be asymptomatic or have symptoms that aren't as pronounced as older cohorts of the population. And I think that's reflected in the fact that two-thirds of those that have COVID in our community, the Aboriginal community, are between the ages of 15 and 44. The the other reason I say numbers are likely to be more than they are is that currently when people 
go and get their COVID test, they're not being asked whether they're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. That has been something that those of us who have worked in health policy over the years and those of you who are out there potentially still working in health policy have fought long and hard for when someone is admitted to a hospital or when someone signs up to visit their GP, they are asked the question, are you Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander? And that's really important for obvious reasons. But the, the, the most important reason is that there's actual wraparound support available to Aboriginal people who, who contract the virus, um, mainly through the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector. But there's also support for uh, friends and families of those that, that contracted the, the virus. And so it's really important that we get that support to Aboriginal people because we know that, uh, you know, we're a vulnerable cohort. Let's, let's not pretend any, any otherwise. And if it gets into the community proper... COVID will potentially kill those of our mob that are in their 50s, 60s and 70s. The, the horrific devastation that is being wreaked across the aged care sector at the moment, killing people in their 70s, 80s and 90s, could easily do the same thing in, in my community, um, except um, for those at a much younger age. So it's important that we continue to do the right things, that we stay the course no matter what happens with the numbers over the coming days and weeks. So on to tonight's show, and um, I will have two warriors for the cause joining me. Shortly, I'll be joined by a friend of the show, Roxanne Moore, who is the Executive Officer with the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, NATSELS. She's a human rights lawyer and a fierce advocate for our people and recently has been fighting to raise the age for incarceration for kids from 10 to 14-year-old. Uh, yesterday, the councils, of, the councils of Attorneys General have postponed the decision to raise the age, claiming there is a need for further work. And I have to say, there couldn't be a more mediocre response from elected officials if he tried. So we'll talk to Roxy about that. And in the second half of the show, uh, I'll be joined by the one and only Mariki Onis from Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance. She'll be online to talk about the Black Lives Matter protests in Sydney today. And to remind us all that despite what you might hear elsewhere, black lives still matter. So that's the show for you this evening. Best way to connect with me is via my Twitter handle at MrDTJames. And as always, stay safe, stay strong and stay listening. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now, Triple R listeners being groovy, uh, finger on their pulse types, would probably know about the Rage, um, Raise the Age campaign. Uh, amongst all of the COVID gloom, yesterday we woke with a small glimmer of hope that the Council of Attorneys General would raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14. So we set by and waited for the news, waited for the communicator to come out. And of course, they didn't. And this is despite research from the Australian Institute and uh, changed the record that shows that most Australians agree that children as young as 10 do not belong in prison. And that's the Australia's age of criminal responsibility should be increased from 10 years old to the global medium of 14 year old or higher. So on the line now with me is a um, tireless campaigner on this and so many other issues on behalf of our community. Roxanne Moore is a Noongar woman and a human rights lawyer from uh, the Margaret River 
region of Western Australia. She's the executive officer for the National Peak Body on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services. She's been a tireless advocate to raise the age for years now. And Roxanne is on the line. Roxanne, welcome back to the mission. Hey, thanks for having me. How surprised were you by COAG's decision yesterday? I'm just incredibly disappointed. Um, it's I, I just think it's outrageous for the Council of Attorneys General to, to wait even one more day to make this decision because all of the evidence is there, medical evidence, justice research, like you mentioned, the public support is behind it. Um, the rest of the world is far ahead of us. Australia has one of the lowest ages of criminal responsibility in the world. And yet, despite all this evidence, despite all the alternatives to imprisonment being in place, what we saw was the attorney, attorneys general saying that they need more time. Um, they called this inquiry in November 2018. And so it's been a year and a half, and yet they're saying that they need more time to consider the alternatives and what will happen to these kids. But we already know that. We've had so many youth justice inquiries over the years that the evidence is just, it's there. The solutions are there. We just need the political will to put it into place. And so to me, this very clearly says that our young people's lives do not matter to um, Australian governments. And we are calling for them to prioritise our kids' lives and raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to at least 14. And, of course, you know, the, the, this impacts, as all youth justice and, and incarceration issues do, impacts uh, Aboriginal people disproportionately. We're, we're dramatically over-represented mm -hmm. in, in, in the justice system. Did they give any specific type of reasons as to why they needed, you know, till 2021 to do something about this? They just said that they needed more time to look at the alternatives to imprisonment, which I just think is a delay tactic um, mm. from governments. Um, I think that they could have made a decision. Um, I think that we, it's very clear um, what the alternatives are. I mean, you know, in Victoria, for example, you know, VALS, um, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, ran an incredible program called Barlet Nulu, mm -hmm. which was um, Australia's only um, only youth legal service for Aboriginal kids. And um, it looks, you know, at the, that child removal as well from families, like it helped kids to um, stay with their families, which is deeply connected with um, the justice system as well, especially for very young kids. And so, you know, programs like that... Um, didn't get funding to continue. So even though, even where um, alternatives to imprisonment have been successful and are Aboriginal-led, they're not getting the support to continue. And that is a, the choice of governments. Um, governments are choosing instead to lock up kids, to throw away the key to their futures, rather than making this very clear evidence-based decision to um, build a brighter future for our kids. And, and speaking of evidence, there's been increasing 
evidence over recent years that one of the determining factors around the future success of Aboriginal people is making sure that kids in particular are in touch with their culture from a very early age. Mm -hmm. And that 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 happens. That should happen across a whole range of systems. We see it with foster care, where uh, by far and away the best form of foster care is kinship care. Um, one thing sending a ten-year-old to prison does for you know x amount of months or years is deprive them of that culture. Yes, absolutely. And um, the Korea Youth Council put out a uh, really deadly report. Um, recently or a year or so ago called Nagaji and that really went into detail about that and about how Aboriginal led you know diversion programs and bail support programs which connect kids with community and culture and identity really help kids um, deal with the issues that are going on in their life that mean that they're in contact with the justice system um, and help pull them out of the quicksand of the justice system. But we also really need to look at the racism and disadvantage that are pushing kids into the justice system mm. as well because we know that for our kids, um, they're, they're far more criminalised, over-policed and, and targeted. Um, I mean, 65% of 10 to 13-year-old kids in prison are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids and our kids are only 6% of the youth population. So it's it's hugely disproportionate and we know our kids are, you know, Aboriginal legal services have represented kids for stealing a chocolate frog or a loaf of bread. And they're really minor offences, um, you know, mm. breach of bail because kids don't understand the um, bail conditions, um, things like, you know, theft and property offences and public order offences. Um, are things that, you know, really we do not need to be using the, the punitive, abusive um, prison system um, to um, for these situations where we could instead be um, making sure that kids have everything they need in their life, um, you know, housing, um, support for their families, mental health, you know, culturally safe disability supports and um, and education as well and you know making sure that they've got all of those things to give them the best opportunities to thrive in their community. And we see even in, in remote communities where kids have culture where they're, where they're connected, where they're surrounded by love and they have ambition and I'm, I'm referring to the movie In, in My Blood It Runs um, which yeah. Um, yeah. has been a, a key component to the Raise the Age um, campaign. We see uh, young Duan there, even with all that wrapped around him, just teetering on the edge of the justice system at any given moment. And to have a kid like him, so bright, so talented, um, so connected and so beautiful, thrown into prison for some minor misdemeanour, um, uh, I think really illustrates the, the, the scale of the problem here. So if people want to... Um, um, see or get a sense of, of what Roxanne is, is talking about, I would thoroughly recommend her to go and watch um, In My Blood It Runs. It's um, available on all um, streaming services or a number of streaming services at the moment. Um, the campaign to raise the age, Roxanne, um, has a very broad range of support um, from agencies across across the board. Mm -hmm. For instance, the, the AMA came out yesterday and, and condemned the deferral, yeah. for instance. Yes. Yeah. So um, medical um, organisations like the Australian Medical Association, 
the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association and the Royal College of Australian Physicians have all joined the campaign. Um, And that's because the medical evidence is so clear and compelling. And it says that kids under the age of 14 should not be locked up. Um, They're in a stage of development where they can't actually understand the criminal consequences of their actions. And uh, most importantly, um, prison is really harmful and damaging for kids for life. Um, You know, you think about the kids um, in youth prison in Victoria at the moment who are all in Mm -hmm. lockdown um, because of COVID and the, you know, imminent risk of a, a... COVID outbreak in prisons and they're you know we've heard that kids in Malmesbury have been locked in their cells since last last Sunday like a week ago um and that's so damaging for kids um and that's just that's just the start of it I mean we've seen the horrors of Dondale we've seen um abuses in youth prisons in every single state and territory um you know using dogs on kids denying medical treatment and food you know um restraints um solitary confinement um hooding and gassing all of these things which it's just prison is no place for a child and we should be building futures not prisons and and that's why we need to raise the age and you you mentioned Milesbury there there's Six cases of COVID now in in youth detention. There, um, another one of your one of your major campaigns that you that you are passionate and work on, Roxanne, is um, clear out our prisons or clean out our prisons. Um, we're beginning to see COVID take a bit of a foothold in some of our prisons. Is, is there any noises from the state government on on that front in terms of getting you know First Nations people out of some of those cells to to prevent it potentially wiping out a whole generation of Aboriginal people? No, um, there hasn't been. I mean, there's been very clear calls from um, from VALS um, and Natsals have been supporting those um, and and many others. I mean, it's been very clear that across the world um, the response to mitigate the risk of COVID in prisons is to release people from prison. And we know that our mob are most susceptible to dying from COVID-19 and and contracting it. And a lot of our mob in prison have chronic illnesses already, um, are living with disability, um, are are more vulnerable for a whole range of um, circumstances. And so um, it, it makes so much sense to, you know, make sure that people, Aboriginal people who are in there for really minor things are, are let back out into the community that um, people on remand who haven't even been sentenced mm. or, um, you know, found guilty and now their, um, you know, hearings will be all delayed too because of COVID, um, that they're released, that, you know, administrative leave is granted where it can be, that um, parole is given to people who are at the end of their sentences. Like, there's so many actions that the government could take right now to reduce the prison population and they're just not doing it. Yeah, there's so many levers you can you can pull. And these people um, in prison for, for various offences, they're, they're, they're mums and dads, they're, they're cousins, they're uncles, they're aunties. You know, they, they mean something to to people outside and uh, to, to, to lose them needlessly from a, a lack of inaction would be 
just another travesty on top of all the other travesties that are sort of occurring at the moment. You are listening to the mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. I'm speaking with Roxanne Moore from uh, Nat Sills. So back to um, uh, Raise the Age, Roxanne. Uh, where to from here? I guess you just got to keep your, your your foot to the foot to the floor on this. I guess. Look, this is just the beginning. I mean, we have yeah. seen an outpouring of community support in the last couple of weeks and people sharing photos online of when they were 10 years old, um, you know, saying that they're completely outraged that 10-year-olds are locked up around the country and that this injustice has to end. And we've seen, you know, over 135,800 signatures on our Race for Age petition. Um, we've seen that, that polling that you mentioned, which says that more than one in two Australians agree that the race sorry, the age of criminal responsibility should be raised to 14 years. Um, so there's all this evidence, there's all this public support. We just need to keep um, the pressure on. Um, and states and territories don't have to wait for this report next year. They can they can do this um, on their own. Um, and, um, you know, some states and territories have already committed to it, like the Northern Territory, because it was actually a recommendation in the Northern Territory Royal Commission. Yep. So please head to the website, raisetheage.org.au, sign the petition, um, uh, follow Change Record and, and Natsals um, and stay involved. Uh, the hashtag RaiseTheAge, stay involved in the campaign. We'll, we'll keep you updated about the next steps. But this is just the beginning and and I'm, I am I feel really hopeful still given um, – the movement and the, the momentum over the last week, uh, I feel like this really has cut through um, to yeah. the broader community and that people are, uh, are you know, um, coming along with us to get justice for our kids because um, we know this impacts Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids the most and um, our young people's lives matter and we need governments to take action um, to give them a better future raisetheage.org.au or if you're on social media the hashtag raisetheage is a good one to, to follow. Um, Roxanne was the host of Indigenous Sex last week I think it was and um, basically yeah. used that as a, as a great platform to promote this idea and this cause and if you uh, like many other people claim to think that black lives do matter then this is something that um, uh, is a major part of ensuring that um, black lives black lives actually do matter because it's just not the the incarceration or the arrest of Aboriginal people it's the way that they are treated in prison and within the justice system. Uh, Roxanne, thank you so much for uh, coming on um, tonight, using your valuable time to promote a worthy cause, and um, stay in touch. We'll um, keep in touch as this uh, campaign keeps on uh, moving forward. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. To our second guest this evening, and um, our second guest is uh, Marek Jonas. Now, you may have seen on the news today that the struggle in relation to Black Lives Matter continued in Sydney a continuation of the protests that happened and occurred across the country um, earlier in the year, in June, I think, seems like a lifetime ago. So why are people on the streets during a pandemic? Well, the reasons are obvious to us in the Aboriginal community. 
Aboriginal women and men continue to die in custody, and it's 438 now since the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody was completed in 1989. And there is yet to be one conviction of any police officer or justice official since then. And so many of you would be familiar with Mariki. She is a Gunai and Gudijamara woman who grew up in Gippsland. She's a co-founder of Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance and is one of the organisations of Melbourne's Invasion Days, Abolish Australia Day rallies and the aforementioned Black Lives Matter rally earlier this year. She's passionate about transformative justice and abolition in her community. Mariki, welcome back to RRRR. Thank you very much. Um, Warriors of Aboriginal Justice released a statement, I think it was yesterday or the day before, um, strongly supporting the protests in Sydney today. And in particular, you cited the terrible death in custody of uh, David Dungay Jr. Um, I guess to paint the picture and, and, and just help people understand why people are hitting the streets, what, what were the circumstances of his death? Um, I believe, um, and from what I know, I'm not an expert, that um, David Dungay Jr. died in very similar circumstances as George Floyd. Um, George Floyd was the um, African-American man that was killed by police in Minnesota that um, that kind of started, sparked um, international uprisings against white supremacy. Um, and that really hit a chord and a nerve for our mob here. And we certainly felt those waves here. Look, we've been fighting against black death in custody for as long as it's ever existed. Our people, the resistance goes back before the Royal Commission. Um, and so um, uh, David Dungay's family and a lot of people, um, not just Aboriginal, um, but the mainstream community more broadly, um, this all struck a chord. And David's story was catapulted back into the mainstream spotlight. And um, the fam family is still very much fighting for justice for David. Um, and um, they're calling for an investigation into um, into the into the police, into the prison guards that um, that killed, that are responsible for David Dungay's death. And there's still been no accountability. So um, it's very much raw, um, and mm. I can certainly understand why that family have kept pushing extraordinarily hard for justice, despite um, what we're up against today. I guess one of the one of the I guess the furfies around the the lack of justice around black deaths in custody, um, you know, thus far has been okay. Well, it's a a systemic issue, and that ignores the, the, the personal responsibility of the people that actually commit these acts or commit acts of negligence on, on Aboriginal people. That's where I think uh, a lot of people in the Black Lives Matter movement want to start seeing some focus on. It's not just as, it is a systemic thing, but there's got to be accountability at the personal level. Look, I agree. Yeah, yes, of course. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. I think um, the history of this country, it has outside of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and more recently, Aboriginal deaths in the mainstream, um, in the mainstream kind of media and, and discussion outside of you know an Aboriginal person discussing this issue and knowing a lot more, um, or anyone that's kept their eye on the issue. 
Um, this, so this uh, recent uprising of Black Lives Matter movements all around the world has enabled us to talk about black deaths in custody um, in a systemic framework, whereas mm-hmm. it's always been looked at as a single case and, and in isolation and, and that these deaths are happening in the vacuum and therefore it couldn't be racism because um, how can they be racist? You know, that, and I think yeah. when we only look at these cases and these deaths in a vacuum, we do miss the element of the, race, the racist element, but that doesn't let the perpetrators off the hook. There should still be accountability for all actors involved. That means the system and that means the individual actors um, that, you know, are killing people, killing our people, whether it be um, extreme violent negligence or just outright killing people. Do you think Do you think we need a um, another Royal Commission into this? Do you think that'll do anything to to have a have another look at some of these issues? I think it's really a waste of our time. Yeah. Um, they haven't listened to the Royal Commission that's happened. I mean, what a waste of resources to look go back and look at what we already know. The findings are that Aboriginal people are over-incarcerated, and that is why we're dying in custody at far greater rates than anyone else. Aboriginal people are the most incarcerated race in the world. Now, if we were white, this would have been addressed. So um, I don't think... This is the the issue that I have personally. Post-Royal Commission, they already knew better. They said that the reasons for the over-incarceration was because of racism. Those recommendations, I can't remember, 339, have, have largely been not implemented. But I don't think... I think we need to go further. I think that Royal Commission is a marker for what we know, and that's just really all it is. I think we need to abolish the police and prisons, and I think we have to get comfortable with language around abolition um, and implementing system responses of care, not harm and punishment, and um, have our people continually go through this cycle of abuse. I mean, you know, if you look at the budget for police and prisons in Victoria, it doesn't even come close to the budget for housing. Mm. You know, why don't we do a war on poverty? How hard is that? I know where all the resources are. They're sitting in the, um, the criminal justice system. They don't stop crime to police. They come after the crime is committed. So, I mean, that, you know, there's a lot of more in-depth discussion to go into that and I couldn't possibly capture it all in 10 minutes but I think we need to go further than reform. I think I think a really um you know an interesting way that sort of illustrated that sort of the funding of the police the levels of funding for police was the response to the the people in the towers recently in which what we saw was initially just a, a purely a, a police response. There, there wasn't accompanying mm. social workers or people helping other people out with housing. And I think if people want to get an idea of, of where we're heading potentially in this state and, and other states around the country is um, we have got a very, very strong police union here. And as a result, we have a very, very well-funded uh, police force. And we need to make sure... Mm-hmm that we don't become a police state. Do you think we're on the verge of, you know, becoming a police state any time in the near future, Mariki? I think we've arrived. Mm. I think that that's actually the present. 
I think that people have lost... People are being surveilled at far greater rates. The police have access to technology that's even really beyond our understanding. Um, and when we protest in the streets, the, the restrictions that they put on us are out of this world. I mean, the it's not just the police association, it's Daniel Andrews as well. He wins elections yeah. on law and he's order. decision maker. And his yep. approach to law and order. Yeah, and I think he should be held accountable for that. You know, he's got a lot of rapid on Labor supporters who um, maintain that they are here for um, economic justice for all and, and whatnot. But, I mean, I just think that, that and, and, you know, no one will hold him to true account for his politics around policing, especially marginalised communities. I mean, if we took... And I'll go back to your point about the residents. If you mm-hmm. took um, what it cost to do that police operation into investing in building appropriate community housing for every single resident there, they wouldn't have had the overcrowding issues and they would have had access, appropriate access to sanitisation. You know, the answers to COVID, I mean, what the issues to COVID and what we're seeing is um, exposing a history of abuses to our health, social security and our housing system. And that's exposed it. And that's where we're going to see everybody that's, um, you know, so-called most vulnerable it's because of the inadequate systems that, that's there to, meant to be there to support us. And I hope that this is a lesson from this virus oh, that too. if you leave someone behind, you're going to need us, you know, when the virus comes back or if another virus happens. Absolutely. I think, you know, if there's anything that the virus has, has shown us is that there are gaping holes in, in a number of systems um, across society and that the people that we actually need the most are the people that um, you know, live in those towers, the 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 the, mm-hmm. the cleaners, the, the the checkout people, the the bus drivers, you know, all trying to make a better lives for themselves. But we've developed a system and it's a society that has left them um, exposed and, and and vulnerable to to public health issues like this. Um, I'll take it back to the the Black Lives Matter um, protest earlier this year. What's it like mm-hmm. having certain aspects of the right-wing media try to pin the spike in COVID numbers on that rally, despite there being absolutely no evidence of a link to the protests with a spike in COVID cases? What's it like to continually fend off false and misleading allegations? It's so offensive, and I attribute that to the um, the online abuses that I have been I constantly get, um, but also it's been weaponized into serious harm against activists, um, the Black Lives Matter activists more importantly. Um, that lie specifically that's been dispelled by the Victorian Aboriginal Health um, Community Health, uh, sorry, the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, the peak body for Aboriginal health in Victoria, have come out and said that there is no evidence of a link between the current surge in numbers and the Black Lives Matter march. I mean, that's been proven, but, I mean, when I've got the Australian um, posting, uh, printing stories, um, um, false stories about that, I mean, there's nothing that we can really do. But the issue that I take with it is that the New South Wales Police Commissioner, and this is deep negligence, and I think yeah. this really exposes the integrity of a police force when your head, the, the head of your organisation could blatantly lie to manipulate media that 
uh, directly impacts the lives and the safety of Aboriginal people fighting for their rights. I mean, it's it's a perfect formula for something to go wrong. And I think he's deeply negligent and the media. But that New South Wales commissioner, he should know better and he should fact check what he says to the media. It's not true. And um, people got arrested today and there was serious... Um, that, that's, I, I mean, I, I think the deprivation is very serious. Um, criminal act that um, the police are able to get away with. I think it's linked and it's dangerous. Yeah, and he's, he's coming to it, com- actually. Yeah, his comments were incendiary, basically, without question, without any sort of fact-checking, basically accusing the Black Lives Matter protest in Melbourne as being responsible for the for the spiking cases here. It's um, uh, wrong, it's offensive, and it's provocative. And I think that, um, you know, he, he may have actually known what he was doing in, in that act of uh, provocation. Um, you're, you're I 10 think when is- you hold a position at that level... Oh. No, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. If you if 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 you if you're at that level, you should know what you're talking about, yeah. Exactly. There's no excuses. He's got greater resources than I do. So, if people want to continue to be involved in in the campaign, you can visit the uh, the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance on uh, on Facebook. Just uh, search for them there. Um, but on social media, the hashtags Black Lives Matter, Justice for David Dungai Jr and uh, hashtag stop black deaths in custody are where you will find lively and um, vibrant conversations on these really important issues. And if you ever see anyone trolling Mariki online, um, uh, block and report them. Uh, that's unacceptable. Um, it's just a continuation of the, the 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 racist attitudes that we need to fight in this country. Not that she can't handle herself, you understand, but um, uh, we're, <laughs> we're all in this together in so many ways. Um, exactly. Thank you. Marie- Thank you so much for your time um, and uh, good luck with uh, the continued fight. No worries. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.